Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. Dietitian Connection would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording this from the Aboriginal land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I'd also like to extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. This podcast episode is supported by Abbott. The podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to your individual circumstances. This podcast is for your information only, and we advise that you exercise your judgment before deciding to use the information provided. Professional medical advice should always be obtained before taking action. Now, today we're exploring a responsive feeding approach to managing and hopefully avoiding feeding issues in kids. We all know how challenging feeding can be, both as a parent and as healthcare professionals, and dietitians are often a contact point for parents who are concerned with their child's eating. To learn more about responsive feeding, I'm talking to Leah Vandervliet, an accredited practicing dietitian from Sydney, who has a special interest in feeding in young children. Leah has only over 15 years' experience as a paediatric dietitian working at the Sydney Sydney Children's Hospital, as well as in private practice. Welcome to the DC podcast, Leah. And wow, you must have seen the whole spectrum of feeding issues over your career. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's a a delight. So first off, because our listeners primarily are dietitians, can you just give us a bit of your background, your journey as a dietitian and where your interest in child feeding came about? Look, I can still remember probably good 20 years ago being at uni and getting um, our lectures in paediatrics. I was up in Newcastle and some of the dietitians from the John Hunter Children's Hospital came along um, and we had our series of paediatric lectures and I remember thinking, gosh, I'd love to work in peds one day and just sort of, you know, it planted itself as an idea in my head. But I kind of thought, look, it may or may, may not happen, but we'll keep it there because when the jobs, you've got to take what you get when the jobs come out. And then when we got our final clinical placements for in fourth year, um, I remember opening up my letter because we didn't get to pick where we went, opening up the letter, where am I off to? Um, and I was going to the children's hospital. And it was fate. I, it, yeah, it was fate. And I um, remember I stayed at the nurse's quarters and I remember I bought the um, clinical pediatric dietetics textbook and I probably read it every night back at the nurses' quarters. There probably wasn't much else to do, but I absolutely loved it and was then fortunate enough to secure some locum positions over a few years before um, landing a permanent position there. And I guess where the feeding challenges came across is, and interested in that is that because it's it's part of everything you do in paediatrics. And, and definitely if I recall, you know, when we're lecturing to students in paediatrics, we're often talking about the, the ages and stages and what happens. And I worked with a lot of families, um, sometimes from when their children were born, and I covered many different clinical areas, including feeding clinic. Um, I worked with the diabetes team for a long, long time. And, and 
navigating the ages and stages, particularly in the early years of feeding, plus parents having to manage some of these chronic and complex conditions with with some tricky dietetic components as well, um, really sparked that interest in me in, in how children are fed and how children eat. Um, and, and of course, you know, when you have your own children, there's a whole new learning curve and you realise how hard it actually is. I fully prepared to breastfeed. I read everything. I was onto it and I was not prepared for how hard it was. Yes. And also the fact that as much as I had all this knowledge and help and support that I had to put so much trust in my baby and was and still awed by the fact that we did it together. We formed that true feeding partnership and I would, you know, measure, measure him and pop him on the scales every now and then probably like a lot of dietitian mums do, and plotted on the growth charts. And, and true to form, when I trusted that he was getting enough, he, he grew along that growth curve. So I think that for me, it really cemented that idea that that this is the way to feed. Yeah, and, um, and that is a good underlying principle, isn't it, that it's a partnership between you and your child from the very yeah. get-go. That's right. I mean, I thought I knew what I was doing and I probably really didn't, um, but he didn't read a single book, but he knew yeah. what he was, you know, he knew what he was doing. You're led by um, an expert. <laughs> that's right. He was primed to do it. And then and and similarly, we then, you know, you start solids and you we've we've been through the toddler years and now we're in the school age years. And, and he's been fairly textbook like a normal child going through the, the ages and stages. And I've I've had to really ground myself in in those responsive feeding principles. So what have you seen are sort of some of the really common challenges that parents do experience with their children's eating? Probably the most common one that comes up, and, and I guess it's what I've seen in time working with families um, that are seeing a dietitian because they're, you know, managing something like diabetes or when I guess now in private practice people coming along to see me um, either voluntarily or with a referral is, is just that, that fussy eating stage or that picky eating stage where sometimes, you know, that the, the that their baby has eaten a range of foods and then they hit those toddler early preschool years and all of a sudden they're not so interested in the same foods anymore and they become so a little bit gobsmacked in terms of what to do and how to respond. And I guess it's the the fussy eating or the picky eating, there's no kind of true definition for what it actually is, mm. but we know it's a fairly typical stage. Um, and Defining the, the prevalence of it is is difficult because there's no single unifying definition. Um, one thought is that it's in an inadequate variety or quantity of foods um, and can include a rejection of both familiar or unfamiliar foods, and that's the neophobia is sort of the unfamiliar foods. We know that it can um, peak usually between the age of about two and six, and around three years of age is probably where we see most kids presenting with picky or fussy eating. Yeah, so... If if a child is have some fussy eating or some eating patterns that aren't the best, um, can that actually influence the parents' feeding behaviours in turn? It can, it can, and that's because we we talk about feeding being, uh, I guess, a bi-directional relationship. The child influences the parent, the parent influences the child, and and it's that true. Um, it's almost like a dance. Some people describe it as it's that that true kind of partnership. And we know that sometimes when feeding difficulties do present themselves, parents may change their behaviours around feeding, usually from coming from a place of worry and concern. So it's really important not to blame the parents. Um, and sometimes they um, follow through what uh, one researcher, Katja Rao, 
calls the, the worry cycle. So the parents are worried about their child's intake. So then they start to apply pressure um, and use tactics to try and get their child to eat more. But then usually when you push children, sometimes you're met with more resistance. So children sometimes eat less, less rather than more. Yeah. And and we know that this can often typically happen in this age group because, you know, kids, their growth has slowed down compared to the first year of life. They're much more in tune at knowing how much they need to eat and their appetites can be really variable. So it's really common for kids in this age group, particularly the toddlers and preschoolers, to eat more one day than the next. But usually we know that over a week or so it tends to even itself out and they will they will eat enough. Yeah, and I guess that is a common thing from parents' point of view is they see their child not eating or, you know, turning down food or pushing it away and there's so much talk about growth and, you know, the importance of nutrition that a few meals that are refused sends them into a tailspin of panic. Absolutely, and they kind of scratch their heads and wonder what they're doing wrong. So sometimes if they're worried that the child isn't growing well, they'll they'll start to do things like, um, maybe prepare a different meal or sit there for a long time to encourage the child to eat. Sometimes they'll, um, you know, say things like, you can't leave the table until you finish what's on your plate. Or um, they might, if they're worried that the child isn't eating, you for example, vegetables. You know, the classic one that some of us might have grown mm. up with, you know, if you eat vegetables, you get dessert. Mm. And we know that long-term that doesn't work because it, doesn't make the child learn to eat and enjoy vegetables um, and can actually sort of damage that feeding relationship because the parent is trying to control the child's intake rather than following on with their um, innate ability to know what they what they need. So can these feeding challenges actually have an impact on a child's you know normal health and development? It can, and this is the really interesting thing is that it's really nailing down, you know, what's going on with that individual child because if we try and look across research papers as, you know, looking at picky eaters or fussy eaters as a group because we don't have that standard definition, you don't always get a unifying response from the literature. So it's finding out when a parent comes in and says, oh, my child is a fussy eater, or you have this referral from a doctor that says um, Jane has fussy eating, mm. what that actually means to that parent and that family and, and what the parent's perception of the issue is as well. So you might might find that the, the parent is really worried about the child's growth and not growing so well, or it could be that the parent's worried that they're not eating enough vegetables and they could both be defined as, as picky or fussy eating. So when we look at say, at this group as a whole and we want to say, well, hey, how is the growth affected? You can get really mixed results. So some results will indicate that children might be likely to be underweight. Other studies suggest they can be above a healthy weight. Other studies will show that they can grow normally because although they may not be eating a variety of foods, they could be eating enough calories to get them to grow. Yeah. Sim- yeah. And similarly, if we look at energy and protein intakes, again, you can get that that range. What we see though is that although fussy or picky eating is a fairly typical part of development and most kids will grow out of it, there will be a percentage that takes it with them through to their teenage years. And when it's studies that have looked at what happens longitudinally over that range of time, you see that those children that are now teenagers tend to be um, a lower body weight than their peers that have grown out of the fussy eating. And is it much more Sort of, do you see it in your practice a lot more in certain other conditions, like intertwined with children that might have other medical, physical, um, different conditions as well? Yeah, definitely. I think 
what I would see in practice is going to be, um, I guess, a, a proportion of the population of us here. So people that are coming specifically to see me are often children that have um, sometimes food allergies. You know, right. children with multiple food allergies are more likely to have fussy eating. There might be children with a past history of gastrointestinal complaints. So we see that children um, that have had a history of reflux, um, sometimes children have had a history of constipation um, that can have some feeding challenges because it, it affects their appetite and their ability to eat. And another group of children that I see would be, um, for example, children with um, ADHD that are on medications that inhibit their appetite that can make yeah. feeding difficult. And similarly, the um, groups of children with autism in particular have feeding challenges often around the sensory aspects of food and are very routine-driven. So they would be the people seeking assistance, particularly with looking at that variety of foods in their diet. And so you've you've already sort of mentioned the term responsive feeding. Can you give us a bit of a definition of what that actually means? Yes, yeah, so responsive feeding is a feeding style um, that looks at how children are fed rather than just not only what and how much. And the focus really is on the feeding relationship between the child and I'm going to use the parent in this example, but it could be whoever's actually mm. feeding them. So it's really based on the principle of responsive parenting where a child's internal hunger signals and fullness signals are recognised and met with a, a prompt and reliable and appropriate response by the parent. A guiding principle comes from Ellen Satter, who um, has coined the phrase a division of responsibility in feeding, which is a logical and easy way to explain it to parents. So looking at who's got what jobs in the feeding relationship, so the parent is responsible for the structure and routine of eating, so what gets eaten where and when, so looking at that eating environment and what's happening throughout the day. And the child is responsible for whether they eat that food and how much. So it really is based on a system of trust and that the idea that children have that curiosity and innate ability to know how much to eat and it's, they will grow predictably predictably if they um, are allowed to to choose how much they eat. So some of those, if, if you're following this kind of pat or idea of parents being the ones to provide the variety and just offer the food and the child decides what and when to eat, does that mean that there should be parameters about how long food is out for? You know, do you have a certain time that you offer a meal um, or is it just ad hoc? Um, do you, and I guess parents, it's very hard for them not to sort of pander to those likes and dislikes and start narrowing down what they offer. So you just continue yeah. to offer a whole range of foods. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So remembering that the particularly the younger age children, the toddlers and preschoolers, they thrive on that predictable routine. I mean, they don't really have a concept of time. They like to know what's coming. They feel safe and secure in that. So it's up the parent, up to the parents to create that routine of three main meals and two to three smaller snacks during the day with gaps in between so that children come to the meals hungry. And that's the key here so that if they're coming to the meal hungry, they're going to be more likely to, to want to eat and also making sure the parents continue to provide a range of appropriate foods, including familiar and unfamiliar foods, so that in order for children to try and want to eat new foods, they need to, to see it and be exposed to it, and also that there's family meals as well so they can see the 
parents or their siblings, um, other people eating that food as well and, and watching how that happens. That's how children learn to eat. They make a lot of mess in the process, but they learn to eat. But that, that ad-libbing, um, grazing during it, throughout the day and letting children have something as soon as they say they're hungry is just going to make mealtimes harder because they're not going to come to the table hungry. Mm. And so you asked too about time limits on meals. So we usually recommend no more than 30 minutes for a meal. And sometimes, you know, when you're meeting with families for the first time, you might find that they're spending to an hour or two an hour and a half each meal. If you multiply that by multiple meals in a day, that's, that's a full-time job in itself, just just feeding a child. Um, yeah. Most young, most young children will, you'd be lucky to have them sitting there for um, yeah, about 10 minutes. Time, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> eat and they're done. Yeah. So when, when you say about offering, you know, variety of foods, I assume then that means that you make no judgment or anything on on what those foods are. You just put out the foods and that's the range. It's not like, oh, look at these yummy peas or, you know, like trying to sort of dress things up as good or bad. Yes, that's right. So definitely remaining neutral about foods because children will push up or, um, sorry, I don't know what I was saying there. Children will um, detect if there's an ulterior motive. Yes. And you're, and and even encouraging or trying to coerce them into eating something is a form of pressure. And sometimes you will get resistance again that against that. It's it's hard to do though. Yes, um, yes. And it requires a bit of coaching and remembering too that if parents are feeding children you know, three meals, two to three snacks, um, seven days a week, three hundred sixty-five days mm. a year, you know that's you know it's going to be brilliant some meals and, and not brilliant other meals. And yes. I think that's you know and telling that to parents, you know, it's okay. Um, some you know some days that witching hour at the end of the day is, is yes. a tricky time of day. You just need to get through it. Yeah, just need to get through it. And <laughs> I find myself I've had to say to myself, you know, Leah, zip it. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I will. I will try and it, and I know it doesn't make a difference. Yeah, yeah. So this the responsive feeding approach. Do you find it suitable for all children? You know, other yes. exclusions? No, def- definitely all children, and 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 it's actually promoters as the best way of feeding children, even from from birth. Um, the World Health Organization talks about it. Um, UNICEF talks about it. Um, the dietary guidelines for Americans that have recently come out of a whole section on responsive feeding, uh, particularly for younger children. So um, infants in particular, no matter how they're fed, really if you're feeding them on demand and following those cues that they're hungry or have had enough is true responsive feeding, particularly breastfeeding where you can't see how much they've had. Yes. The parent is deciding what's on offer, but it's the, the bulb that's deciding when and, and how much they're going to have. So if a dietitian is um, doing a lot of work with uh, families and, and children and they are presented with, you know, a family arrives with a child with feeding challenges, what are the sort of steps for a dietitian um, in that situation to help them? Yeah, that's a great question because I think dietitians, that no matter where they work, are, are going to come across some of these feeding challenges, um, whether in private practice, working in a clinical setting, or even you know in early childhood settings or public health. Um, and of course, dietitians are really well placed to do that thorough nutrition assessment. And I think really find out about how food works in that family. I think that's what dietitians are really quite skilled at. So what you're doing is obviously finding out 
what children are eating and how much because that's what we do as dietitians but we're also really having a good look at their growth and that can be hard sometimes because you don't always get a lot of growth data sometimes you've got to go back after the appointment and get some extra information it's also about really listening to their feeding story because sometimes this might have been going on for years Mm. I've, i've seen children that might be at that classic age of three but you go back and find out the feeding story and there were problems and, and challenges in feeding from birth. So parents might have been doing this for, you know, three plus years or more, depending on how old the child is. And it's really important to find out about what happens with meals, where they're eaten, where the child's sitting, who else is eating with the child, what happens if the child says no. Um, and looking at, you know, is the parent providing different meals to that child for the rest of the week? Yeah. yeah, it's and it's really important to listen and also be really non-judgmental as well, um, because sometimes, as we talked about before, you know, knowing that there's that bi-directional feeding relationship, and we don't want to blame parents. And parents will sometimes come, "Oh, it's my fault. Oh, yes. I know this is the wrong thing to do." But you know, and I say to them about, you know, children don't come with an instruction manual. And they might have multiple children and they're all, everyone yes. is different. Good, different. Um, yeah. You know, everyone, the children are an individual as well. Some children um, approach life with an immense amount of curiosity and they're adventurous. So they will jump into any kind of food that exists. Other children are a bit more cautious in the way they approach life and they can approach food in the same way. And so I think dietitians are really well placed to have a look at all of that and optimise the child's nutrition, but also realise that they might need to be part of a, a multidisciplinary team. Um, yes. Sometimes they often are, but it's not uncommon for people to come and see a dietitian first. But it's really important to engage GP or paediatrician if the child has a paediatrician and also utilise um, the skills of other health professionals as well. So sometimes children might be rejecting, say, certain food textures like meat because it's harder to chew. And they might need to see a speech pathologist to have a look at their oromotor skills. Um, yeah. Some of those children that have got those more sensory difficulties can also benefit from speech therapy input as well as using, utilising occupational therapist as well. So it's it's kind of reaching out to kind of look at the child holistically and also support the parents as well. So sometimes it comes up that there's not just feeding challenges, there might be sleeping and settling yes. challenges yeah. as well. Yeah, um, it's just part of the whole complex picture package Mm. yeah so how does um or does a responsive feeding approach differ to any other approaches that might be used um for eating difficulties a responsive feeding approach will dig a little bit deeper as well to look at what's underlying the behavior as well because remember it often comes from a place of worry and concern so you've got to address the parents concerns first in that in order to kind of move them forward so it can take some time um so a, a behavioural feeding approach might be where, where parents are offering a reward when their child's eating or a punishment, you know, you can't leave the table till you're done or I'll give you a sticker if you eat this. And it's really looking at the child is their, their motivation. So the child isn't motivated to do it themselves. They're doing it to get a reward yeah. or an ex- yeah. extrinsic motivation. And what that does over time, you might get short-term success, but it tends to be not last, long-lasting and can undermine that feeding relationship. Whereas a responsive feeding approach using that framework is really focusing more on that intrinsic motivation. And there's a good paper again by Kacharau, which looks at, um, you know, really great description of what responsive feeding is. And it talks about 
the rediscovery of internal cues and curiosity and motivation, remembering that kids do have that internal drive and desire to eat. And while building their skills and confidence, it's also fairly flexible and promotes a feeding relationship, develops autonomy. So it's focusing on the child's willingness to, for example, try new food and being curious about a new food rather than have the parents say, oh, look, you know, if you have one more, if you have one bite of that, you get to have another bite of this. Yeah, yeah, which all sounds quite obvious. You know, when you put it out like that, you think, well, that's just sensible. But but when you're actually implementing this um, with a family, uh, do you, are there barriers that you commonly see to this approach to, you know, implementing responsive feeding and what are they? Yeah, there can be some barriers and it, it can be just dealing with the parents' concerns. So, for example, it can take some time, so they still might be worried that their child hasn't had enough. Um, young children get sick a lot, so they may find that they're moving forward and then and all of a sudden they get sick and their appetite goes down. But what is normally in a lot of children is that then their appetite picks back up. So if you're feeding in a responsive way, when their appetite comes back, yes. they want to eat more and let them eat more, it'll even itself out and they usually will, will get back to where they were. There can be challenges as well. So other people that are involved in feeding the child. So we often think about the yes. home environment and we know that that's the most important, but you've got daycare, you've got grandparents, you've got the influence of, of different styles of parenting and those generational influences, particularly if, if other generations are influencing the parents and giving advice to the parents as well. That can make it hard too. We know as well that the way parents eat can have an influence too. So that parents that are more likely, for example, to be emotional leaders themselves yes, right. might be more likely to use, you know, food to soothe their child. Oh, you're upset. Oh, here, have this, that, um, which again is a, what we'd call non-responsive. So mm. use food outside of a normal eating time. Um, other health professionals and their knowledge of, of eating challenges and this style of eating can, can make it hard as well because sometimes parents can get conflicting advice. Yeah, yeah, and uh, isn't that, I mean, trying to limit where they're getting their advice from is probably key too so that it's not just from playgroup as well as Google yeah. as well as the healthcare professional. Yeah, That's right, and, it, and it's parents' expectations of themselves and I think parents see, you know, images on social media of what, what a dinner looks like mm. or a lunchbox and they think that they need to emulate that whereas, you know, and it's really important um, because some parents will say, oh, look, there's, there's just not enough time or, you know, it's hard to get the family together and I agree, particularly when children get older, you've got yes. older children doing activities, you've got parents working. So I think it's important for dietitians as well to decline what we might say something like, you know, eat a meal as a family. We don't mean that the whole family has yeah. to be present and yeah. accounted for. It's whoever's there at the time. And, if, for example, if younger children are eating earlier than, say, the parents want to, well, the parents can sit down and have a cup of tea. Yeah, you yeah, know? exactly. We talk about, talk about eating at the dining table, but, you know, over the last few years, dining tables have become this school desk. table. <laughs> desk, yeah, the office desk. And maybe there's too much stuff on there to clear it, so we yeah. might eat around the coffee table. And I think that's that's okay. Yeah. And I think dietitians are really well placed to to work through that with families to really crunch down and look at those feeding goals and say well as a family maybe it's just on weekends and it could be breakfast on weekends that the whole family's together that's for family time other times it might be whoever's present at the meal to sit down and eat with that child but it doesn't have to be 
Yeah. Yeah. A set table. Um, yes. With a table <laughs> serviette. <and> silver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my mother would have expected. Um, <laughs> so just thinking through, you know, children that really might have be really struggling with, with their eating issues. Um, do oral nutrition supplements or can oral nutrition supplements actually play a role in this approach to feeding or responsive feeding? Oral nutrition supplements can have a role, particularly for those children where there might be growth concerns or there's nutrients at risk. So particularly we know that children with some eating challenges and and us eating in particular may be growing okay, but when we look at the sorts of foods groups that are mm. typically omitted, it's often vegetables, and we know that there's a range of reasons for that. Um, they don't always taste acceptable. They can look a bit strange. And things like whole grain fruits and cereals, you know, often it refined versions, not the, the grainy kind of ones, and meat, particularly um, sort of whole meats rather than processed meats, are often... Um, Emitted. So we know that there can also be nutrients of concern as well, particularly iron and zinc. So oral nutrition supplements can provide a way of giving rounded nutrition. They can also come in a variety of flavors as well as um, liquid versions, powdered versions, and you can tailor those where you need them. So, for example, if you've got a child who's got very um, sensory-based food issues, it may be more useful to use a liquid supplement because that's going to have fairly consistent mm. taste, texture, flavour and smell because um, it's not important for these children to really inspect things, they smell yeah. things before they eat them. Whereas other children, for example, that might have a, a limited repertoire of foods, you know, you can get the powdered supplements, you can add them to foods like yogurt and mix them through to just give it that nutritional boost. Yeah. Um, children with fussy eating are more likely to have constipation. So there's some supplements that have got added fiber into them as well, because that can be a way of improving the gut health and getting some fiber in while you're working on exploring working in fruits and vegetables into their diet. So would you just add these if you decided that they were required for a particular child? add them like as a snack or in the meal or do you just work with the family to decide what's going to work best for that child? Definitely that approach, work with the family and decide what's best and being very, I guess, prescriptive in a way of when and where it should be offered. So we're trying to tailor it in as part of a meal or snack. So again, we don't want to see that grazing on it in between meals because then children aren't going to come to meals hungry. We also don't want it to become elevated in the parent's mind as a superfood that must be consumed because then again, you're going to fall into that finish your drink sort of mentality that offering it and whatever they have is is that's serve and it's going to give them a boost. Yeah. Um, introducing it again in a fairly neutral way, but maybe everyone has a everyone has some at that first couple of times so that the child doesn't realise they've got something different. Mm. And for example, I've had children take them to school. Um, some of my kids that have got um, ADHD and have really low appetite during the day, the <clears throat> parents will introduce them in the morning when there's, you know, goes hand in hand with when they take their medication. So right. it's one of those sort of piggybacked on that habit. Yes. Um, and, and similarly, particularly for those those teenagers with those high growth demands, when that appetite kicks in at the end of the day, serving it as a supper with something to eat. 
So as you say, it's just a, it's part of the routine. It's nothing special. It's nothing life-changing or, you know, as super. It's just part of the eating part routine. Of, part of the routine and also working with the parents. And I try and workshop a few scenarios, working on the theory that for the most part parents know their children best. Yeah. And yeah. know what works, um, but also emphasising that it's a try it and see approach. Um, if it works, great. If not, well, then we'll workshop it and try something else. So I mentioned that it sounds like common sense. The the approach, responsive feeding approach sounds like common sense, but I'm sure that families, you know, in when they're in their family life, it's very difficult. Would you see uh, some kind of um, improvement or changes over weeks or is it months or, you know, what sort of time frame are you setting up for the parents to expect? It could be both. And sometimes you'll see the change first in the parent. Before the, before the child. And so I can, you know, recall a couple of conversations with parents recently where one had said, I tried, you know, I put this food on her plate for a month, but I remembered and I just kept putting it there. And the, the day she came to see me, she said, oh, I think it was meatballs or something. She said, she had two last month. Yeah, yeah. So I knew and I had to stick, I had to stick with it. With it. And I can remember a, a, another little one that I saw and their mum was you know, doing that, oh, you know, she's the only one, everyone else in mother's group, they're eating everything. Yes. And over a couple of months, she sort of, you know, she kind of, you've almost got to say, you know, hold hold tight and reminding them that the child hasn't picked up the phone or logged online to book an appointment with a dietitian. Um, yeah. It's the parents that, you know, the child is happy. They think but also, great. I guess, I guess it's sort of, you can reassure them that As the dietitian, I will make sure that they're not going to have a deficiency. I'll I'll make sure that they're going to get enough nutrition. So you can just focus on the feeding behaviours and I'll make sure that they're not going to suffer nutritionally. That's exactly right. And that's what I talked to them about at the first appointment, which um, you sort of said, you know, what do you do? And it's saying, well, look, let's let's do a check of their nutrition. Let's work out where they're up to. Let's have a look at their growth. And sometimes that's the other thing, um, sitting down and explaining those growth charts to parents as well, because sometimes no one's explained it to them before. I still yeah. have conversations with parents because they're worried that their child is not a 50th percentile. But they've, they've always been, been grown. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say they've always been, you know, 10th to 25th percentile and have grown there beautifully, but they yeah. think that they've got to be on that middle line. And so... Even just addressing those worries and concerns and explaining that, um, it's like, oh, because parents do see, you know, the babies, they triple their weight on average in the first mm. year of life. And then they see that it, do, it does slow down, but they think that there's something, something yeah. wrong, but it's yeah. not. They, they're growing beautifully. And that's the, I guess, the importance of anyone involved in children taking those measures and, and plotting them on the growth chart, but explaining them to parents because a lot of the reassurance then parents see that oh, they're actually growing okay. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, I get it now. So if dietitians um, are seeing these sorts of clients um, and the term responsive feeding approach might be new to them, what would be your key takeaways um, for, for our listeners about the responsive feeding approach that they should know? I think they should really know that it's it's the optimal way to feed children from birth. Um, both in preventing feeding difficulties, but then as a as a foundation for managing feeding difficulties as well. It's important to know that using something like the vision of responsibility in feeding is a really useful way, and there's lots of resources out there about it, but 
just that simple message that parents have jobs and the children have jobs and that the parents are responsible for what's on offer, where and when, and the children are responsible for whether they eat and how much. Yes. And if everyone's done their job at a meal, well, then that meal has been a success. Even if, for example, the child only ate the pasta rather than everything else that was there. Um, the importance of role modelling at family meals, exposing children to a wide variety of foods, is the key to optimising their intake over a long time and getting variety in as well. That they need to be mindful that there might be red flags to look for as well. So, for example, if children aren't growing or they've got some of those oromotor feeding challenges, if there's coughing or gagging or anything of concern that they might need to involve more members of their multidisciplinary team and look out for that because parents presenting with a child with feeding difficulties, they might use the words picky or fussy eating is going to mean a different thing to everyone. Mm. So finding out exactly what's going on is really important. And we know that children with fussy eating and picky eating sometimes can grow well, but doesn't mean that they don't have nutrient deficiencies. So it's really important to do that thorough nutrition assessment and look out for those as well. And for children with feeding difficulties, targeted use of oral nutrition supplements can be helpful to provide extra nutrition whilst working on their feeding difficulties. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And Leo, I just have, have one other question for you. Thinking back to when you started out working with kids with feeding difficulties, when you were not a mother and you didn't have a lot of experience, I'm guessing, with feeding children, is there anything you would tell that younger self um, about how to approach these parents? Because let's face it, with maturity and life experience, your approach to parents with managing feeding difficulties probably changes. Is there anything, you, piece of advice you would give to young dietitians who may have not gone through the actual parenting journey that's helpful? Oh, that's a really good point. I mean, I think being a dietitian has probably helped in terms of feeding, maybe a better parent, but, oh, my goodness, being a parent has made me a better dietitian, <laughs> that's for sure. I think it's um, the main piece of advice would be, you, you, you know, be part of meals. If, if you're someone that wants to work in paediatrics and you don't have ready access to small children, um, yeah. whether it be through friends or family members, look at ways where you can, um, you know, you can volunteer your services, um, you know, anything working with children just to see what it's like that children have their own unique um, personalities and ways of approaching life as well. And it's a, it's a very rewarding space to work in. And I think it's the real key for me has just been patience. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Leah. You've given us some great tips for implementing the responsive feeding approach. And we'll put some supporting resources in our show notes if dietitians would like to get some more information. We'd also like to thank Abbott for supporting our podcast episode today. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button. 